Let's open to the book of Romans this morning. Paul set out to preach the gospel in Romans, and he's preaching to believers. He's preaching it to believers. He's telling us the implications of the gospel, not only what's happened to us in the past, not only who we were before we were saved, not only what Christ did for us so that we could be saved, but also the implications of that justification. What does that do for us now in the Christian life that Christ has died for us and been raised again for us? I want to bring a message to you this morning called the Believer's Spiritual War. The Believer's Spiritual War. Paul's now turning from all the doctrinal teaching that he has been giving us and starting to give some commands, some imperatives, some things we should do, not just know, but actually do. Then he'll take a break from that and go back to teaching some doctrine for chapters 7, 8, and, and into 9. Eventually, by chapter 12, he's going to come back around to the commands and tell us how to now live based on everything he's taught from chapters 1 through 11. We're looking at this doctrine of sanctification, being more holy, growing in Christ-likeness, growing in godliness. And so that's the theme of chapter 6. I want to start back and read to you from verse 1, though, because I want you to see how he sets up the whole chapter. He sets it up with a question in verse 2, and then he goes through verse 11 on his doctrine and starts to give a command even in verse 11. But 12 through 14, that's where we're at today, 12 through 14, he gets very pointed, very specific. So let's start in verse 1. What shall we say then? Because of all that Christ has done for us, because we once were in Adam and we were great sinners because we inherited Adam's sin and condemnation. What was placed on Adam's account gets placed on our account because he was our representative. And then Christ came and died on the cross for us. And when we have faith in him, we are saved. Because of all of that, what shall we say about that? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. Never, ever, not possible. God forbid, that's the King James, God forbid, how shall we who died to sin live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died has been justified from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting your members to sin as an instrument of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you. 
For you are not under law, but under grace. What a wonderful passage there. You can see even how he ends these commands by reminding us once again who we truly are in Christ. We're looking at, as I said, this doctrine of sanctification. How are we supposed to live now that we've been justified? What does that mean for us? And the first question we have to ask, which Paul brings up here is, what about sin? What about sin as a Christian? Shall we continue to live the old sinful lifestyle and habits and thoughts that we used to live out in our lives? Shall we continue to make God look good? Because every time we sin, he forgives us, makes God look so wonderful as he gets to express his grace. Is that the attitude we should have? And Paul says, absolutely not. Absolutely not. And then he goes into this teaching on sanctification. Sanctification is a different doctrine than justification. You receive the two together, and then sanctification is an ongoing process throughout your whole life. But they are not the same thing. When you begin to mix those into one, you end up with something like Roman Catholicism, which says you can't really be justified until you're completely sanctified. And that doesn't happen until the end. And you don't even know your whole life if you've been justified because you have to keep working harder and harder to be sanctified. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that we are justified the moment we have faith. The moment we have faith, we're united to Christ. We receive justification. And Paul has been talking about that since chapter 3. That God declares us righteous. That he takes our sin and puts it on Christ's account. And Christ's perfect righteousness gets put on our account. That is justification. Now, how should we live? Well, we should live and grow in godliness as believers. We should continue to become more and more like Christ as the Spirit works through us. That is sanctification. Here's what Charles Spurgeon said. I like this quote about sanctification. He said, it must not be forgotten or overlaid by justification. You can't forget about sanctification and just talk about justification all the time. And you can't overlay it with justification. You have to talk about sanctification. He says, we must teach plainly that the faith which saves the soul is not a dead faith, but a faith which operates with purifying effect upon our entire nature. And produces in us fruits of righteousness to the praise and glory of God. Spurgeon understood and he saw it with all the members of the church that he had. He saw that it was necessary to teach on both justification and sanctification. So Paul does that. He starts back in verse 3. And 3 and 4 really is about how we've been united with Christ. He references baptism as an example of what we were doing there. We were professing Christ as our Savior. We went down into the water. That shows that we're united in Christ's death. Not that that happens in the act of baptism. There's not magical water out in that pool or the pool that we put in here. He are just testifying when you're baptized what's actually happened in the heart. You're testifying what's happened in the heart. And in those days, it happened really quickly after a person professed faith. There weren't a whole lot of false believers in the early church, although there were some. We see some of those later in the epistles of John and so on, and even in Galatia. However, Paul could just reference their baptism, and they would think in their mind, yes, I remember that. I remember what it represented. I remembered how it pointed to things that had happened in my heart when I trusted in Christ. Going down, dying with Christ. Coming up, alive with Christ. And so that's what he does in verses 3 and 4. 5 through 11, we looked at last week. And 5 through 11, he continues to tell us there about this new life 
in Christ. This newness of life that he ended with in verse 4. And in 5 through 11, he said two things that we needed to know. That this union with Christ has broken the power of sin. It no longer has control over us. It no longer has power over us. It's been broken. We're no longer slaves to that old master. And on the positive side, it has made us alive to God. When you're united with Christ, now you are alive to God. Not just trying to live for God, but you actually are alive to God. Now, what you make of that, that's your sanctification. What you do with that is your sanctification process. So now he continues, but gets a little bit more pointed with these imperatives, which he's going to get into in verse 12. So he's going to give us three imperatives for the believer's spiritual war. You still have remaining sin. It's still there. What do you do about it? First of all, he says, do not let sin be Lord of your life. That's verse 12. Don't let it be your king. Don't let it reign over you. Therefore, he says, and therefore is a logical conclusion. Whenever you see that in the Bible, look and see what it's there for. Look at what came right before it. Almost always he is summarizing and now applying what came before it. He's bringing verses 1 through 11 to bear now on your life, on the reader's life, on each Christian's life individually. Based on all these things I've said, Paul is saying, you must do these things. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Reign. Basaluo in Greek. It has to do with a kingdom. It has to do with a king. It has to do with a king's reign. It means to exercise authority at a royal level. To be a king, to be a ruler, to be in control in an absolute manner. In ancient times, kings had absolute control. Emperors had absolute control. Yes, there could be little factions that would fight against the king or the emperor. But if he told you to do something, you were supposed to do it. Now, let's go back and look at chapter 5. He's used this word before, this idea of reigning. This same Greek word before, either in a verb or a noun form. Look at 5.14. Here's what he said about it already in Romans. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses. Even over those who had not sinned in the likeness and trespass of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. So death had a kingdom. Death had a reign over the descendants of Adam. Now go to 517. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one. Much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So there's a comparison. Those who remain in Adam have death reigning over them. Death is the kingdom they live in. But those who are in Christ have life reigning over them. They will have eternal life, not eternal death, eternal punishment. One more verse there, verse 21. Here's how he ends chapter 5. So that as sin reigned in death. So death and sin go together. They can be thought of as the same king, the same ruler. Or as I mentioned last week, two twin kings on the throne. Two twins here, death and sin. As sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness, to eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. When you're in Adam, sin reigns. Death reigns. When you're in Christ, what reigns? Life, righteousness. Those wonderful blessings that God gives when we are saved. So now in 6.12, Paul is talking about this reign. And, and everything he said up until that point was in the indicative mood in Greek. That's just a statement of fact. He's just saying, here's how it was. Death reigned. Sin reigned. 
If you're in Christ, you have life and righteousness reigning. But now, don't let sin reign. It's an imperative. It's a command. And it's even in the third person singular. Why does that matter? Not because you necessarily love Greek, but it gets translated like this. Let. Do not let it reign is the idea. And sometimes in English, we think of the word let as permissive. Like Paul's just being permissive here and saying, you know, as you're thinking about it, don't give it permission. No, it's not like that. There's a way to say that in Greek, but it's hard to translate what he's saying here into English. It's very direct. Do not have sin. I command you not to have sin reign over a person, a Christian. He's just speaking very broadly to every Christian here. In an individual sense, he's saying, do not have sin reigning in your life. You control whether sin has reign in your life and do not let it have reign in your life. Which brings up a theological question. If you've been tracking with what Paul's been saying here, especially in Romans 6, there's a question. How is it even possible that sin could still reign? He said already that our union with Christ breaks this bondage. Look at verse 6 again of chapter 6. The old man was crucified. I made a big case last week that the old man is dead. He's been nailed to the cross. He's gone. The body of sin has been done away with. Again in verse 6. Also verse 11. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God. Paul, how can sin reign when it's dead and the old man has been crucified? Well, he didn't actually say sin is dead, did he? What did he say there in verse 11? Consider yourselves to be dead to sin. You should think about yourself as being dead to sin. But sin's not dead. It's still there. It's still pulling at your heartstrings. It's still pulling at your mind and your body. The old man is dead. The person who was controlled by sin, he was crucified. When you came to Christ, when you're united with Christ, when you're buried and you've been raised with him, spiritually speaking, your old man that was controlled by sin is dead, but sin's not dead. Sin is still there. Sin is still alluring. Sin is still tempting. And there's this indwelling sin that still exists within us. Pastor Frank preached a great message a few weeks ago from James on this temptation and how we tempt ourselves and how when we follow that temptation, we give birth to actual outward sin. So even as a believer, even as someone justified by Christ, our battle with sin is not over yet. It's not over yet because he's going to talk about it on and off throughout the rest of Romans. The battle is still there. But it's not the same as it once was. The battle has changed. There's been a victory already declared. Remember he said in verse 5, didn't he? He said that we will be in the likeness of his resurrection. Paul said, here's the finish line. Here's what it's going to look like. You're going to be resurrected like Christ was. You're going to have a glorified body. There's the finish line. Now he backed up and started looking at how we run that race to the finish line. So he's declared the victory. But what about the in-between, what do we do? Well, he's not saying that sin still reigns just like it used to. It would make no sense for him to tell us, don't let sin reign if it still reigns. That's like telling a slave, well, think of yourself as free, even though you're still a slave. That's not what he's saying. That's illogical. He's not saying that at all. No, our relationship with sin has changed because we're united with Christ through faith in him. But sin does not reign. When you come to Christ, sin does not reign over you like it once did. It still tries, though. It still tries. And you now have the ability to resist it. 
You didn't before you came to Christ. You could resist certain sins, maybe the ones that would get in trouble with the law, put you in prison if you desired not to go that route. But you couldn't resist sin in general. And you couldn't resist those really tempting sins that you loved. You were in slavery to those sins. You were in bondage to those sins. It had an influence over you and not only an influence, but a reign over you. And Paul says, don't go back to that. Don't let it reign even for a time as a Christian. Don't let it take control of you for an hour, a day, a month. That's called backsliding in the Christian life. You're making progress in the Christian life. You're growing to be more and more like Christ. And then you let sin just have a little fun with you once again. You choose to let it. You decide to let it. You're no longer under it, but you decide for some time to let sin take control. That's called backsliding, going down the hill instead of up this progressive climb to be more and more like Christ and sanctification. The early church father Augustine said, we still have desires, but by not obeying them, we do not allow sin to reign in us. And Paul even uses the description in your mortal body. He's trying to get us to think about this life. Obviously, sin won't reign in the resurrected body. But we still live in the mortal body. We still live in this life. We still live in what he'll say in 1 Corinthians is the corruptible body. And he's reminding us as long as we're in this world, sin still wants to come back and be our master. Still, sin is out there and in here tempting and tempting and tempting us to let it reign just for a little while once again. And sometimes we're fooled by that as Christians. We think, hey, it wasn't so bad. I'm kind of down. Things have not been going well. Life was kind of fun back when I let sin reign. I'll give it a go around once again. I'll let it take over once again. And then we learn the lesson all over again, don't we? And have to repent and confess our sins as we should to the Lord. He forgives us. He cleanses us once again. He continues to wash our feet as we walk through this world and cleanse us once again. Why does he say body specifically? Well, it's not to say that when you're saved, your soul is perfect and your mind is perfect. And everything, spiritually speaking, is perfect in your life. And it's that old body. If we could just take our body out of the picture, it wouldn't be a problem. No, he's thinking of your whole person. He focuses on body like he did previously talking about the the body of sin. He's focusing on the body because that's where your sins are acted out. Whether it's your mind, and your mind is considered part of your whole person. Whether it's your different uses of your body, which you'll get into in the next verse. That is where sin is accomplished. The mortal body. That's where we act out the sins of the heart, and they get expressed out into the world. And Paul is saying that's where the real spiritual battle is waged. Preventing the sins and desires of the heart that are not right. Preventing those from getting out and affecting our mortal body acting them out. You've got to do battle in the heart. And he'll come back around to that later on in Romans. You've got to have spiritual war in the heart so it doesn't affect your outward expression of sin. Well, we're looking back and sometimes we think the old king would be more fun for us and we learn our lesson. And Paul's saying, no, you must not do that. You must not do that. What's the result of letting sin reign once again, just for a time? He says, So that you obey its lusts. You don't have to wonder. What does this look like? He says right here. You simply obey its lusts. A lust is a desire. It's just a desire for something. Three times it's used as a desire for good things in the New Testament. Almost every time though. 
35 times it's used as a sinful desire. That's why we often see this word lust come up, especially in the letters of Paul. Sin brings with it many sinful desires. And when you obey them, if you put yourself back under the reign of sin just for a moment, you will end up obeying its lust. That's how you know. How do, how do I know if I'm letting sin reign for a little while? Well, you obey its lust. You follow the desires. To obey means to follow instructions. You live under sin's rule. You obey what it says. You're in obedience, not to the Lord, but to sin. And you do what sin tells you to do. And it gets acted out as sin. Now, there's a lot of bad theology out there on sanctification. And it can really confuse the believer. It can confuse the believer who desires to follow the Lord. And they hear wrong teaching. One of those wrong teaching is called the higher life theology. Or sometimes victorious living. Or Keswick theology, as it was called in the United Kingdom. They teach that a person is justified. You can be justified as a Christian, but real sanctification doesn't happen until some point after you've been justified. There could be a gap. It could be many years before real sanctification occurs. And so for that person, if you think about it practically, they're struggling. They're struggling with their salvation. Am I even justified? What do I do with my life? And what they tell people to do in this theology is that you have to fully now give yourself to God. At first, you just had faith. And then there was this gap and you realize, I can't do this. And they say, now you've got to give everything to God. And uh, the phrase, very common phrase, there was even a book written against this view that we have. We have this book in the bookstore titled this. Here's the phrase they use, let go and let God. And they say, Christian, your problem is you haven't given your life to God. And they say, you haven't given it all. Well, when you come to saving faith, you have given it all. Sometimes you want to take some back and sometimes you backslide and sometimes you struggle. And that's what Paul's dealing with here. But he never says there's some gap in your life when you don't have this sanctification process happening. No, he never says that. He says, you're declared holy. Now go out and live like it and grow in your holiness. That is wrong theology. It's the opposite of what Paul says here. He doesn't say, well, the problem is you're hanging on to this one thing. You need to go and let God have it all. Then you'll be sanctified. No, it's a constant battle from day one. It's a constant battle from the moment you're saved. You have some somewhat of a honeymoon period when you're first saved. God seems to just clear off all that sinful temptation away from us. Maybe our friends abandon us for a little while, but then it eventually comes back and it is a fight. Sin is still there, very appealing very much seeking to reign over us. But we are not that same old man anymore. We have a new power, a new ability to resist it. And we can resist sin's reign. We must do it for the sake of the Lord. John Calvin said, though sin dwells in us, it is inconsistent that it should be so vigorous as to exercise its reigning power. For the power of sanctification ought to be superior to it so that our life may testify that we are really the members of Christ. If you find yourself constantly living in sin, having no power, no ability to push it off, no ability to resist it, you can't even follow this command at all in your life, then that is an unbeliever. That is somebody who is not justified, who's not got the spirit within them. Secondly, Paul says to the Christian, do not offer yourself up to sin's service. Do not offer yourself up to sin's service. Don't let it rain. Don't let it take over your life. And don't even 
offer yourself and your, your abilities and your giftings and your body to the service of sin. Verse 13, do not go on presenting your members to sin. Do not go on presenting your members to sin. We have another imperative command here. It's the second imperative here in this passage. And he says, do not go on doing it. That's present tense. It means they'll not continue to do this over and over. To offer up for service. This is the actual definition here of the Greek word presenting. To offer up for service as a soldier would to his king. As a servant would to his master. Don't keep showing up for duty to the wrong camp. To the enemy's camp. Don't present yourself for service to the enemy called sin. Don't keep doing it. You once did it over and over and over every day of your life. Don't keep doing that. Stop doing that. You're in Christ now. You're in Christ. And he even says presenting your members. He gets down to the specifics of our body. These are parts of our body. Members of our body. Each part being used now for Christ's service. Or for sin's service. And he says don't offer them for sin's service. What kind of parts? Well there are any parts that you can imagine of our body. Including our mind. In the mind, we can use it for sin. We can have sinful thoughts. We can look very clean and pristine on the outside. And we can have sinful thoughts constantly running through our mind. We should not present our mind up for sin's service. Also hands and feet. Feet take you to places of sin. Hands can be used to sin. The tongue can be used to sin. Especially in our speech. Gossip. Slander. All the things that are mentioned in James 4 about this fire being set forth by the tongue. Eyes, that's a part of the body. Your eyes can be used to sin. Looking at things you shouldn't look at. Enjoying and being entertained by sins that Christ died for. Our ears, we can listen to sin. We can listen to sinful things happening and find entertainment. We can hear gossip that's a sin and spread it on then with our tongue. Believer, when you present your body for service to sin, you're willingly choosing to do it. Christ has taken you out of the enemy's camp. He's put you in his camp and you're trying to sneak back over there and say, here I am, sin. I'm ready for service. Use my members. Use my body to serve you. Don't go on doing that. Don't go on doing that. He gets more specific. He says, our members get presented as instruments of unrighteousness. Instruments of unrighteousness. Now you might have a footnote here on another translation for instruments. Anybody have a footnote there? It can be translated as weapons. Weapons of unrighteousness. And I think that that is how it should be translated. I know even the LSB tries to be safe here. Because generally this word is an instrument. Any instrument that a person would use to get a job done. The Greek word is hoplon. Hoplon. Originally meant as tools or instruments of any kind but often used as a tool of war, a weapon, including armor. Armor was considered a weapon in the ancient world. The Greeks even had a name based on this name for a weapon, hoplite. Hoplites, the Greek hoplite is an ancient soldier clad in hoplon, or hopla is the plural, clad in armor and weapons for war. So their soldiers were called hoplites, also, every time in the Bible this is used, it's used as a weapon. 
Same word is used other times. In Paul, Romans 13.12, if you want to look at Romans 13.12, he uses the same word. He says, the night is almost gone and the day is at hand. Christ is coming back soon. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the hoplon, the armor of light, the weapons for battle, the spiritual weapons for battle. Let us put on that, and it's the armor of light. Translated armor, but again, the armor was considered a weapon even in ancient warfare. 2 Corinthians 6, 7. In the word of truth, Paul says, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness, same word there, weapons of righteousness, for the right hand and the left. 2 Corinthians 10.4, again, Paul, for the weapons of our warfare, weapons is hoplon, are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the tearing down of strongholds. How do we do battle for the Lord? We put on the weapons the Lord has given us. And one other, one other time, it's used outside of Paul. John 18, 3. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. The soldiers brought their hoplon, their weapons. So Paul is saying, don't present your body parts as weapons for the enemy. As weapons for unrighteousness. For ungodliness, unrighteousness is anything that goes against the will of God. Anything that goes against what scripture says. Your body is a weapon and it can be used for good or bad. Even as a believer, you can present your weapons to serve unrighteousness. You can show up for duty one day because you're lazy, you're sinful. We sometimes just desire a little fun and suddenly we're presenting our weapons for the wrong king. We must constantly avoid that, he's saying. We have to work at this. Avoid giving ourselves over to the enemy to fight for his side. Stop serving the old master and serve the new master, Jesus Christ. It's a true spiritual war. There's a lot of weird stuff out there about spiritual warfare. Right, don't go online and type in spiritual warfare. You're going to end up in some weird school in California that teaches you how to fight demons and angels. This is the real spiritual warfare right here. The real spiritual warfare happens right here, he says, in your own life. You're not going to go out and bind Satan. You're not going to bind demons over counties and cities. Where is that in Scripture? That's what Jesus comes back to do when he returns. We're called to do spiritual warfare with our own sinful desires, with the world's desires pressing in on us, and with Satan constantly tempting us. 1 Peter 2.11 talks about this as well. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, as people traveling through this world to the next life, to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. Lusts are waging war against you, and you have to fight that. Thirdly, third command here in this passage. We see this in the rest of verse 13, going into verse 14. Offer yourself to God's service. Stop offering yourself to the enemy's service. Stop offering yourself to sin, but offer your service to God. He says, but, contrast, but instead of doing that, do this good thing. Present yourselves, same language here, present yourselves to God 
as those alive from the dead. You're alive now. You're not dead anymore. You don't have to just lay down and take this sin reigning over you. Use what the Lord has given you. You're in his army now. Use the weapons that you've been given. Use your instruments of righteousness. Use your instruments of right. Your members now can be used for God. The same ones that were being used by the devil can now be turned and used for God because you're in Christ. Same language. Give yourself to God's service. That's what it means to present yourself here. Put off that old uniform. The old man's dead, but sometimes you still put on his uniform. You walk around and it smells like death. Take it off. Remember who you are in Christ. Put the uniform of Christ on and use everything you have for his glory. Place your members, he says. Place your your weapons at his disposal. Not for unrighteousness, but for righteousness now. Righteousness to God. Do what is right and holy and good. What God says is good. That's what righteousness really gets at. What God says is good. Do that. You were dead. Now you're alive to God, believer. Fight in God's army. Not against other people. Although we do that in a sense when we take the gospel. He's getting at fight sin with God's instruments of righteousness. The ones he's given you. You're alive to him. And now he backs this up. He explains this. He says, for sin shall not be master over you. You can do this. You can do this. And once again, he's saying, sin shall not be master over you. He's already told us the old man's dead. The old body of death has been done away with. The old man's been crucified. You're no longer slaves. And once again, he reminds us. It's so great that the Bible continues to remind us of these indicatives, of these truths. This is not an imperative here. He's not commanding anything. He's telling you a fact. It's actually in the future tense. It isn't now and it will not be master over you. You're not a slave to sin. You can't be a slave to sin if you're a true Christian. It will not happen. What a wonderful promise. As we're going to do battle with our own sinful lusts, Paul reminds us that we are not slaves to this master any longer. It's a certain fact. Douglas Moo, the commentator, says, without this promise, which recapitulates everything he said in verses 1 through 11, the imperative would be futile. One may as well tell a drowning person simply to swim to shore as tell a person who is under sin's mastery not to let sin reign. This only applies to the believer. Unbelievers can't do this. It would be cruel for him to tell believers to do this if they couldn't do it. But they can. And the reason is sin's not master over you. Sin is not your Lord. You can say no to sin. I know people say you can't. I know people say in this world, don't worry about it. God will just overlook all the things you have done. Run off into sin as much as you want. That's what a psychologist will often tell you. It's your parents. It's your upbringing. You've just worried too much about it. Go out and sin some more and you'll get over it. They don't use the word sin, but whatever sin you're describing to them. I've actually had members come here. They were in sexual immorality. They went in for therapy. Therapist says, your problem is your parents and your church that you grew up in. Go do it some more and eventually you won't think about it. Well, the person wasn't saved at that time. So they went and did what the psychologist said. Praise the Lord. Later they got saved. 
and understood the danger of that advice. Sin may reign for a time over our body as Christians as we backslide temporarily. That's the key into sin. Backsliding isn't the rest of your life. Backsliding doesn't last from the point you start sinning until you die. It's temporary. That may happen for a time. But ultimately, sin does not reign. It cannot be lord over us in the long run because its power has been broken. As Christ's subjects, you're able to fight now. You're able to fight. Paul gives the reason for this. How can he say that? How can he say that sin's not master over us? Well, he could go back to saying we're united with Christ. But he gives a new argument. He gives a new argument. You're not under law, but under grace. And it's really the same thing as saying we're united with Christ. But he says it differently because he knows his readers have this idea of law in their mind. And he's covered a lot about the law already. See, every person's in one of two realms. Under the law or under grace. That's all he says here. There's those under the law. There's those under grace. You're not under law. You are under grace. The person who's not saved, who's not fully trusting in Christ, fully given their life to him. And I don't mean fully like you do it in parts. You do it one time fully. That's when you're saved. Then you struggle with sin. But the person who's trusting in Christ is under grace. The law? Who's under the law? Well, that's the old man. Paul's already been talking about this. There's a lot of debate about this. Much ink has been spilled on this little phrase, not under law, but under grace. Let's just see what Paul said on it, though. Go back to 319. He's already talked about the law. And guess what? He's going to talk a lot more about the law in Romans coming up in chapter 7. 319. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are in the law. So that every mouth may be shut and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So what Paul just did is he just finished three chapters of describing mankind's sinfulness. The Gentiles, the Jews, why we need Christ, why we need the gospel. He quoted from the Old Testament in chapter 3. And he finishes out by saying, don't try to do it by working the law. Don't try to do it by obedience. He says, that's not the law's purpose. You can't be justified. It's not possible to be justified through the law. Because through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law comes and says, you shall not do this. It's against God's righteousness. And now you know, even if you were a little confused before. And all sin just by denying God. He said that in Romans 1. But when he states it clearly, like he did to Adam, do not eat from this tree. That's very clear. And Adam does it. He broke God's law. And he knew the law when God told him not to do it. He knew that he shouldn't do it. That was a command. The law, generally speaking, is a command directly from God. The law Paul's talking about there is the Mosaic law. Go forward now to 4 verse 15. If the law doesn't bring salvation... What's its purpose? Well, it teaches us what is sin. Also in 4.15, for the law brings about wrath. Where there is no law, there also is no trespass. There's still sin, but God's not going to say, you have crossed the line of what I specifically told you to say if he hasn't told you directly. Now we have the whole Bible, so we know all of what God has commanded us to do. But there was a time, there was a time 
when people knew that there was a God and they knew they should worship him, but they did not have the Bible. They weren't part of Israel. They were living as pagans and sinning by not worshiping the God and giving thanks to him. But God couldn't accuse them necessarily of not obeying a specific command that he later gives in scripture. That's what Paul's getting at there about the law. 520, chapter 5, verse 20. He tells us more about the law. Why did God give it then? Why did God give it? Well, here's one of the reasons. The law came in so that transgression would increase. That transgression, that sin, that breaking of the law would increase. He showed his perfect holy law to his people Israel. And he said, this is the law. Obey it. You will stay in the land. You will be blessed. I will be your God. You will be my people. And they said, amen. God will do it. Amen. And what they do? They built the golden calf. That's how they started their life. Not every single Israelite. There were some truly righteous ones in the sense they were living for God. But their first sign of wanting to live for God was to build a golden calf. And then deny God in the wilderness. And wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And continue to be rebellious and stiff-necked. That is sin and transgression increasing. God gave the law and he knew. He knew that a sinful unregenerate heart would look at that law and do what? Sin even more. Just like every one of our children, when we tell them not to do it, what do they do? They do it. And then they say, I'll show you mom and dad. I'll do it again and again and again, especially boys. I don't know. Must be the thing with Adam. That's exactly what they do. And that's a picture of what God is saying right here. What Paul is saying in this verse, the law came so that transgression would increase. But there's the good news. The good news is that God's grace abounded all the more. As sin increased and increased, and we can even say this in our individual lives, as sin increased when we were unbelievers, God's grace came all the more when we were saved. It came all the more into our life. So that's what he said about the law so far. Let's go over to Romans 7, 5. Paul's going to get more clear in chapter 7, and we'll get there, but I want to show you a few verses. Romans 7, 5. For while we were in the flesh, what's he talking about in the flesh? He's talking about the past tense, while we were in the flesh, while we were serving sin's desires. See the sinful passions he talks about? While we were in the flesh, the sinful passions, which were aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. This is the unbeliever. The unbeliever sees the law and they go against the law or they try to be saved by being perfect under the law, which isn't possible. And he says that ends in death. Go over to verse 11 now. 7-11. For sin, here's what it does. Taking an opportunity through the commandment deceived me. Paul's talking about his own unconverted life here. Sin my sinful heart saw God's law and took an opportunity and deceived me. Sin deceived me and through it killed me. God's law convicts. God's law is a judgment upon the unbeliever. And Paul says, it killed me. It killed me. And he goes on to develop that later in chapter 7. So the law is good and holy, but an unbeliever rebels even harder against the perfect law of God. He keeps on sinning. Even if he tries to earn righteousness by obeying the law, which is contrary to the gospel for him to even try, even then he's not able to do it because that's not what the law is designed for. Look at 7.12. 
So the law is holy. The commandment is holy. It's not, the problem is not that God's law is not holy and righteous and good. The problem is with our own hearts. Therefore, verse 13, did not that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Brother, it was sin. It's not the law. That was good. It's sin. In order that it might be shown to be sin by working out my death through that which is good. So that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. People under the law see the law and they strive against it. They strive against it. They take it and they twist it and they sin even more. And it just ends in death. And Paul says, you know what happens? You get even worse. You get to be a worse sinner. Utterly sinful is where you get when you try to work the law and work the law. It doesn't happen that way. It wasn't designed that way. But then there's grace. Then there's grace. It frees you from that. It frees you from that constant struggle and striving to be perfect. It frees you from that rebelliousness against the law. When you're under grace, you are with Christ. John 1.17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 20. To the Jews, I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, Talking about the Mosaic law. He's talking about the Jews. They're under the law, unconverted Jews, as under the law. So Paul abided by their food and dietary laws while he was evangelizing with them. Though he says, though not being myself under the law. He's under grace. He doesn't have to abide by that law to try to be holy. That's what they're trying to do. But he says, I'm not under the law so that I might win those who are under the law. So those under grace are led by the Spirit. Galatians 5.18. He says, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Law is good. Law is righteous. Christians have a law to follow. It's not as if you get under grace and you just say, I'll go sin as much as I want. That's what he's addressing in chapter 6 of Romans. You can't do that. There's still commands. There's still imperatives. But we're not under the law like those who were before Christ were and those who before even as Gentiles, before you come to faith, are under the law. So Paul says, you're under grace. You don't have to submit anymore to sin's power. You can fight against sin. You can have some victory over sin. It's not going to be perfect. But you should see as you grow as a Christian, because you're under grace, because you're united with Christ, you should see that sin, that battle is getting better and better. You're sinning less maybe. Are these major sins you used to struggle with have fallen away? You don't have those temptations as much. As we finish out here, I want to give you some specific applications about what you can do to accomplish these commands. These commands are are general commands. Paul's not getting into the specifics of how to do it. He does that later. He does that in other epistles. But I want to go ahead and give you that now as application. I don't want you to leave thinking, well, what specifically can I do? I know I shouldn't do these things. I know I must present my members to God for his service. How do I do that? Well, again, I don't know your specific sin, struggles, and temptations. But I think if you follow these six that I'm about to give you here, it will be of great help. And if these aren't enough for you, meaning that you need more specific help, then see one of our biblical counselors. So let me give you some steps. Number one, remind yourself of your union with Christ. Verses 1 through 11 were all about that. If you weren't here for those two sermons, 
Go back and listen to them. You have to believe that. If you don't believe that, you can't even start this fight. You have to believe, first of all, you have to believe in Christ and trust in him. But if that is the case and you have believed in Christ, then this is true about you in verses 1 through 11. Don't argue with that. Don't try to disprove that. Believe it. That's what you're called to do. And if you're sitting there saying, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't know about verses 1 through 11. I don't know. Paul says it doesn't matter what you think. That is the case if you're a Christian. That's a fact. Secondly, don't make provision for sin. Romans 13, 14. Don't provide it any space, any food, anything in your life. That's what he's getting at later in Romans in 13, verse 14. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Stop feeding your lusts. People say, well, I, you know, I can't do anything about it, Pastor. I just, I just keep stumbling into these sins. Yeah, because you're feeding it. You're pulling it up and saying, let's see what this does to my mind. You're going places you shouldn't go. You're with friends you shouldn't be. You're feeding your lust. You're making a provision for it. Well, you know, I'm not, I'm not intending to sin. I'm not intending to sin. It just so happens every time I hang out with these people, I sin. But I'm not really intending it. I'm just going to go with them one more time. What would you just do? You made provision for your lust. You know that tempts you, but you're doing it anyway. So don't give any room for it, any space for it. Stop feeding that pet called sin. Thirdly, resist. Resist. This is the armor of God in Ephesians 6. We won't look at it now, but it says stand firm against the devil. Resist sin. Resist the temptation. Resist lust as hard as you can and ask God for help so you can stand firm. He's actually given you all the armor of God to do it. Which means if you're not doing it, you're choosing not to do it. And you can't blame God for that. He's given you the power. He's given you the armor. He's given you his word. He's given you everything. The spirit within you. You're choosing to sin. You're not just somehow being thrown into it outside of your will. You must resist you must. Too many Christians whine about their sin. They just sit around whining about it, talking about it. Well, I struggle with this. And let me tell you 30 minutes about this sin and this temptation. What happened there? What are you doing to resist that sin? Silence. Silence. What are you doing to resist it? Well, you know, I have good thoughts when I wake up. It doesn't say that in the Bible. Resist your sin. Later, he'll say, kill it. I'll save that message for Romans 8 when we get there. Kill your sin. Resist it. You know, Christians sometimes want to talk about the finer points of eschatology. All the intricacies of Calvinism and superlapsarian and infralapsarian. Pastor, what about this? What about that? What about your sin? Those might be important questions. But let's just go back to Christianity 101, first class. Trust in the Lord, repent of your sin, and put off this sin. Don't let it rain. And put on Christ and put yourself in his army to fight for him. Number four, flee from sin. Flee from sin. Second Timothy 2.22. You got to flee from it. Well, I don't know. I don't know about this sin. I don't know how to get away from it. Here's how you do it. You run. You flee from it. You get serious about it. Now flee from youthful lusts. Same word there. Lust. Once again, it just keeps coming up. Flee from youthful lusts. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace 
with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. You can do it with others, but flee, run. Joseph, when he was in Potiphar's house, and here comes the wife tempting him and, and lusting for him, what did he do? Did he say, you know, I'm pretty strong. I think I can do this. He ran. He ran as fast as he could and got out of there. You got to do that spiritually. Run. You got the same friends you had when you were an unbeliever. You got the same environment, the same bad habits. Flee, run away. God does not call you to be friends and even spend the same amount of time with your friends and family that are unbelievers as he does to spend time around believers. They encourage you. Run away from those environments where you know you're going to sin. Don't be around the same habits that you're used to that tempt you to sin. Number five, walk by the Spirit. Galatians 5.16, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. How do you do that? That's great. How do we walk by the Spirit? Well, we go and do what the Spirit tells us. What does the Spirit tell us? He tells us in the Bible exactly what we're supposed to do. I got to read my whole Bible. Well, not necessarily, but yes, you should read your whole Bible. But just start somewhere. Start in Romans, start in First and Second Timothy, any of these books, and just get going and know what the Spirit has put in these men's heart to write. It's there for a reason. It's there for sanctification. And so that's how you walk by the Spirit. And you don't resist the Spirit. You don't resist the Spirit by continuing in sin. And the more you walk by the Spirit and obey the Scripture that the Spirit has inspired, you continue to have more and more victory over these sins. Number six, take radical steps to make sinning hard. Take a radical step. Jesus said, pluck out your eyeball. Cut off your hand. Now, he's not being literal. Some people in early church history took that too literally. He is saying, take radical steps. It's not some toy to keep around. It's not something to play with. You put it away in the toy box and get it out when you want to. No, he says, take radical steps. Be serious about it. Be radical. God has provided you a way out. Why are you not taking it? Why are you not taking the way out that God has provided? He's always provided a way out from your temptation and from your, even if you're in sin, he's provided a way out. Someone who refuses to do this, someone who refuses to do these things is not a Christian. I know people will struggle. We've all struggled at times with sin. But someone who just says either they don't want to do it and will not do it, or they act like they'll do it but never do it, that's not a Christian. A Christian has an ability, has a power from Christ, from the Spirit that they did not once have as an unbeliever. And you know what? We are here to help you with this very fight. It's why God gave pastors and elders. It's why God gave teachers. It's why God gave the church. Because we help and we counsel and we admonish and we teach and we pray for you. So let's now ask the Lord's help in this spiritual battle that we're doing. Lord, we thank you that you've equipped us by giving us the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're with him and he's with us. That's the greatest reward we could ever get. And we didn't even deserve that. Thank you, Lord, for choosing us, choosing your people, uniting us with him through the faith that you work in our hearts. Thank you that you granted us salvation. And thank you that we're not alone in this fight. That you didn't justify us, and then suddenly 
leave us to figure out things for ourselves. It's all right here in Scripture. Help us, each one of us, to obey it, Lord, and to follow it, to seek help when we need so to do so, Lord. And we just ask that you would sanctify us and help us to turn away from sin. We pray this in our Lord's precious name. Amen.